Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and today I'm going to have a chat with Malcolm Knox. Malcolm Knox is one of the most prolific authors working in Australia today, uh, not just as a novelist, but also as an author of nonfiction and a journalist, an award-winning journalist. Um, His latest novel is called Bluebird, and it's hilarious. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. G'day, Ben. Congratulations on what really is a savagely funny book, um, which I think will speak volumes to anyone who has ever lived in a coastal town or suburb or has known someone who has, uh, particularly in the kind of urban cluster of Sydney. Um, What inspired you to start writing Bluebird? And uh, did you surprise yourself with the end product? Um. It was initially inspired by a place, um, uh, just a building which is very much like the lodge in Bluebird, um, perched on the side of a cliff uh, at a, a beach in Sydney, and um, it is only connected to the outside world by, by a wooden staircase going up between the houses up above and another wooden staircase going down directly to the sand. Um, so it's, it's almost the perfect beach house um, except it shouldn't be there. It's uh, like uh, somebody got away with something uh, while council were looking the other way uh, somewhere because it has no it has no access to the outside world. I don't know how it got put together. It was derelict for the first few years uh, when I was living uh, near it and seeing it most days. Um, it's been done up a bit now, but uh, I just used to sit there and think, uh, you, you know what could be the life that went on in a house like that, um, who might have lived there over the years, um, and, and, you know, what what dramas can I project into, into that um, house? So it was very much a place-sparked um, story. Um, and when you talk about what surprised me, um, I guess it's the the thing that, that's ended up with your reaction. You know, you said it was a hilarious book. It actually turned into a much funnier story um, than I maybe initially conceived. And and uh, you know, whether it was the characters getting away from me, or uh, you know, something something happening completely unexpectedly that that they were doing that that made me laugh. Um, so in the end, in the end, look, I'm really glad that you you um, found it funny because it turned for me into a funny book. As in, I enjoyed the humour the, the the more as it went on, and that kind of collected like a like a snowball um, as it went. And uh, um, yeah, <laughs> you never know with humour, do you? That uh, you know people. People might just scratch their heads and say, "Well, you know, that was that was really um, close to the bone." Uh, whereas I, I think, oh, you know, I thought it was funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing that, um, and and I get this in your writing as well. That um, you you've got a, 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 a big cast of characters, uh, which which are, are, are frequently very funny. Uh, but they're also very close to your heart, especially Gordon. Um, do you want to uh, tell us about 
the character of Gordon and, and how you've managed to craft a, a novel, a narrative around this guy who is so superbly passive, you know, <laughs> just completely incapable of involving himself in any kind of conflict, even though he's at the complete epicenter, almost drowning in it. Yeah, well, all of that is um, there in the setup of the book, in, in what's happened immediately before the, the beginning of the book, which is that Gordon is this, you know, middle-aged guy who's lived uh, by Bluebird Beach for his entire life. Um, uh, he's kind of slipped through unnoticed in a lot of ways, um, had a good life, he's married with a, with a lovely um, teenage son. Uh, all of a sudden, his wife, Kelly, she's snapped. Um, she's uh, had a fling with Gordon's best mate. Um, so there, there's humiliation doubled up with, with obviously, the rupture. Um, she wants to leave him. Um, but she has a, a stepmother who owns this place, the lodge, um, and has inflicted it upon the family as her scheme to keep them together. So Kelly wanted to run away from Gordon, uh, but the stepmother, Leone, has made sure Gordon moves into the lodge with Kelly and they can't get away from each other. With Ben, their son, and uh, with Lou, who's Gordon's goddaughter, who's turned up um, from the middle of nowhere quite recently in his life. So he's this character who's... Um, uh, he's kind of got everything given to him on a plate, but he never knows what to do with it. And he, he's never really able, as you say, he, he lets things happen to him and he's, he's infuriating in that way. Um, but also I find fairly true to life that, you know, most of us, most of us are more like that than we're um, dynamic action heroes. Um, in concrete terms, what Gordon's problem is that He's been given this this place, um, the lodge, which is his dream house, it's any, anybody's dream house, and yet he doesn't have the money to, to to meet his obligations. This leads those around him who, who love him to try to help him, but in ways that are kind of comically um, destructive of uh, themselves, of Gordon, and, and things just spiral um, from bad to worse. And at the same time, he's he's very much a um, you know sandwich generation person where he's he's looking after his uh, the younger generation and kind of coming to terms with all the changes that he doesn't understand in their lives, uh, while at the same time has um, obligations to his own parents who mm. um, are spinning out of control in in completely uh, different ways. So it's it's one of those stories where you've got a person. In an, in an unstable position initially where you think he's, he's just hanging on by his claws to, to, to by his fingernails um, to, to complete disarray. And that's the beginning and things only get worse from there. And uh, this, this building, this decaying building, the lodge is, is kind of the epicenter of it all, isn't it? Um, you've got, Gordon and his, his, his family trying to hold together there. Um, but it's also bigger than just the family, isn't it, Malcolm? He's, he's got this whole crew of old salts, um, including the best mate who's um, slept with his wife. Uh, and he kind of just welcomes them all into this uh, 
crumbling beach house and you meet the most fantastic uh, cast of characters and you hear the most um, profane and Australian and, and incredible dialogue, don't you? Well, they're, they're a dying tribe um, and, and that was, you know, I suppose, I didn't really have a serious intent, but it kind of turns into um, when you when you spend so long writing something, you, you wonder what, you know, what you're really doing, what you're trying to get to the heart of. And um, for, for me, in this case, it was about um, uh, capturing this tribe in the last moment before before they disappear uh, completely, and 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 that means um, they're fighting to hang on to the beach and uh, not hang on in a in a territorial sense of trying to keep others out. That that battle's long been lost. Uh, mm. money, money is moving in. Other people are moving in. The the sense of um, everybody knowing everybody else at this beach has been long lost. Um, after it's been lost, these vestiges of that community are still there and, and they're kind of crazy um, because they are there still. Um, uh, and, you know, Gordon, I suppose, is the, uh, the personification of that in that when it's a beautiful day, sunny day, perfect waves down at the beach, he won't go. It's like a personal... Um, cut off your nose to spite your face boycott um, because he just can't handle the place when, when there are other people there. But when it's a, a horrible, squally day with, you know, wind and rain blowing in from the southeast and nobody else is there and, you know, blue bottles in the water and, and, and everything, that's when Gordon goes to the beach to, to have a surf. And, um, again, that's a kind of um, a, a statement of that last little sliver of um, self-determination uh, that, that he, can, he can hold on to and tell himself that uh, this is still a place that he kind of has a stake in. Yeah, and there's this, there's this wonderful tension I read in it that um, Gordon particularly and, and his whole crew, and they have names like Snake, <laughs> you know, they're, they're great guys, um, they're incredibly nostalgic um, for a beachside suburb in which they grew up and, and a kind of idyllic life. But they're also cru- cripplingly aware that, that, that it wasn't ideal at all, <laughs> that, that it was really violent, that there was um, serious inequality uh, then as there is for them now. Um, that there's racism, that there's all kinds of um, nastiness going on. Um, is, 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 that, is that something that you're playing with? Like, that, do you think the mainstream of our arts and culture today is still mythologizing or sentimentalizing um, this world of violence and inequality in a kind of echo chamber going back to CJ Dennis and Banjo Patterson? Um. I think that it's something quite particular to this generation. Um, generation of people, say, born between 
between the 60s and uh, the 80s or 90s, born, born during that period, where you look at an older generation who, um, and, you know, these, these people in Bluebird are kind of overshadowed by those, you know, older heroes, the, the wartime generation, their, their fathers and grandfathers, um, you know, the tough, tough men who owned the beach. Um, if, you, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, uh, you probably look at those older people as, even though they were tough and they were um, seasoned by war and depression and, and, you know, all sorts of other things, they were also quite innocent because they were innocent of the things that happened during the, during the 70s, 80s and 90s, which is that this is kind of gradual collection of the tragic happening around beaches and uh, whether in Sydney, you know, there was a string of, of gay bashings at beachside locations. There were, there were and continue to be a whole lot of suicides. It was a chosen, chosen place um, of suicide for, for, you know, many people um, in Sydney and that that generation was sort of left with the, the overhang of the, the myth-making um, that came before them. Um, and they're also caught between a, that and a younger generation who are making, making their own myths. So I, I feel that you can't have grown up at that time without, you know, that really bittersweet feeling about the beach that it's um and, and you know that's not to mention drownings and, and accidental deaths at the beach and you know we've grown up with that around us and and you can't go if if you're of that generation you can't go to the beach and live at the beach with a completely clear head um about the beachside myth um, and, you know, in, in our story of Gordon, that, that ends up having a, a very personal um, dimension. Uh, so I guess he eventually has to confront what many readers would be asking him from the early pages, which is why, why are you still hang on to it? Why, when, when everything's flowing against you, um, do you you have this kind of pathological need and it's not it's not for your own benefit you're not benefiting from it in any way at all but you still it's the one thing holding you together this determination um stubbornness to hold on to why what what lies behind that and um you know i i, I really think that for for a lot of us it's it is the mixture of of bitter and sweet in our lives that um that creates determination, um, create, creates the will to keep going. It's, it's not the feeling that everything's going our way or that everything is against us. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very kind of potent cocktail of, um, of good and bad in our, in our memories. You've uh, got a, a, a story that's um, very um, touching, um, but... Uh, told in a way that's uh, really welcoming uh, and savagely funny uh, frequently. Uh, do you consider this book to be literary fiction? Do you, do you call yourself a literary author? <laughs> uh, li literary fiction is often defined by what it's not. So um, if it's not comfortably uh, a thriller, it's not comfortably a, a crime 
uh, novel. It's not a romance. It doesn't follow the rules of um, of of uh, the genres. Literary fiction is kind of what's left. Um, and if it, if it's also trying, I guess to be a bit inventive with the language, you you would say as literary. And you know, I I think I've always been a bit. Um, more uh, more concerned with getting the reader to keep turning pages um, than uh, to to reflect on the you know the the depth of the thought or the the brilliance of the language or anything like that. I, I really want the reader to to keep on um, reading. So um, I don't know. You find everybody's every author is a little bit uncomfortable with that conversation about how to define themselves um, generically. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I sort of think if there's this, 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 and then other, um, I'm part of the other. An outsider. <laughs> um, you've uh, had a really successful career as a journalist and you've written a, a series of books on nonfiction. Um, and as part of that, uh, you lived and breathed the world of sport, um, uh, surfing, cricket especially. Um, in your Walkley winning opinion, Malcolm, uh, is Australia truly a, a sporting nation? <laughs> uh, I, I think definitely a lot less than we used to be. Um, right. Sport is, um, you know, maybe in, in some way it has a, a um, it's mirrored in this book, um, the the myth of the centrality of sport to Australian culture is preserved through commerce and marketing now much more than it is through reality. Um, uh, audiences for sporting, um, uh, you know, big sporting events are generally in decline. Um, uh, the I think the, the way the Australian cricket team say was you know really in the you know the centre of the Australian uh, breast that we would beat uh, on, on you know national occasions. I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, uh, sport is still potent, obviously for. Um, you know the emotional attachments of people, but it's a much more fragmented uh, sporting um, uh, landscape now. It's not a, it's not a unifying thing. So, are we a sporting nation? The, the, the good thing is that Australians are so active in um, uh, sport and recreation. That's that's by far the most important um, thing when you say, "Are we a sporting nation?" And that keeps growing, and that that is fantastic. And and it's almost uh, come as the the old um, image of you know the norm norm life being that fella who would sit um, you know with a beer cradled on his belly watching watching cricket or footy all day that's gone into decline and um, so yeah to, it's a long winded way of answering your question um, I think I think we're, a, we're we are very much a sporting nation but but in a different way from the way we were uh, hmm. uh, 20 or 30 years ago. As a sports writer, do you write for a different audience now than you did when you began more than a decade ago? Um, 
I write very much for the spectator. I'm not an, I'm not an insider in the sense of trying to um, provide. You know, we have really good journalists and, and columnists who are, who are great at getting to the, the heart of what's going on uh, on the inside and getting, getting information. I'm, I think I'm just a person in the outer who, um, you know, says, says things often a bit unfiltered um, and, and, you know, I see myself as, as a, just another kind of um, person trying to entertain their friends who are sitting around them with them, you know, watching a TV or, or in a stand or something. So very much from the, the outside in and that's... that's probably who I've always felt I've been writing for. Your writing is lauded by the likes of Charlotte Wood and Chrysis Chalkis. Um, and you've been seen as one of the really big Australian writers working today uh, and reading this book, I can kind of see why. Um, who are your literary heroes? Um, or are there any um, good authors you've recently discovered in kind of recent times of mandatory isolation? Yeah. Um, to answer your second question first, uh, for some reason, around the start of this isolation period, I was walking around the house and you know, I've got books everywhere. And I'm thinking there are so many great books here that I've only read once. Or I've read a long time ago. Um, and maybe it was also that um, need, for, need for comfort uh, in, in these times. But I went around collecting books I'd read decades ago, um, just to reread them and see, see if they stood up um, to, to my um, memory of, of how good they were. Many, many haven't. Um, uh, some have and some, some have um, uh, kind of been transformed or my, my relationship to them has been transformed. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I read The Remains of the Day again. Um, uh, an example of one that I, I was just astonished by what a perfect, perfect book this yeah. was. And, and um, it, what, it is as perfect now as it was in 1990 or 88 or whenever it was when I first read it. Um, Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow is another where I, I just thought, wow, that, that is perfection. Um, just last week, I, I read Train Spotting. Um, uh, which, you know, seems very much of its time, but I, I just thought it was an astonishing achievement um, to render a world in that um, Scottish dialect uh, uh, and, and have the reader thinking in Scottish. Um, uh, going further back to influences, look, I, I was always um, in my formative years, or, um, um, it was mainly the big kind of 19th century French novelists, um, French and Russian novelists mainly that, that I read. And um, I did my university thesis on Emile Zola and his um, cycle of 20 novels around a family. And I just reread um, the first of those that, that, um, that made me fall in love uh, with him as a, as a kind of a, a grand documentary novelist of a, of a family and a time and with, with this great intellectual content as well. Uh, it, unbelievably depressing. I couldn't believe now um, uh, how uh, depressing this book was. Um, uh, like Thomas Hardy, there's sort of a sense of um, uh, 
inevitable doom hanging over Zola's novels, but um, his ability to, to just get the whole of the world, in this case Paris, um, of that time um, was, was one of the key influences that made me want to, to write novels. Sounds like you've done some fantastic reading during all this time. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very retro. Yeah. Um, I want to ask how you balance the demands of a, a very prolific and, and varied writing career. You have multiple books going at once, and and you've got the um, the column or articles as well. Um, how do you how do you do it all? Um, the the demands of journalism are not as great now for me as they used to be. I'm not a full time journalist anymore, and. Uh, uh, the time I need to put in is nowhere near as great uh, as it was. Um, the, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, but, you know, you, you, it's, it's not that difficult. It, mm. it, you know, I'm working, working hard doing something I love. So, um, uh, you know, there are, there are hours in the day. You, you'd probably be better um, to direct that question at the people who live with me and have to put up with the after effects of uh, you know the, the, <laughs> the stress, um, which uh, you know is harder for them than it is for me. Um, but uh, no, look, you know, you, you're probably asking how you know how you can get the headspace for writing a novel um, while you're writing other things. Um, I find when I'm in that novel writing period, it, it kind of eclipses eclipses everything else, and I'm I'm probably a pretty mediocre um, mediocre writer in my other fields at uh, at the time when I'm working hard on a novel because it is it is um, an obsessive pursuit, and, mm. and you want it to be for it to be effective, um, you've got to be completely immersed in it. So I don't I, know. I wonder if. If that stress, that that economy of time you have to devote to each little passion, uh, kind of drives the creativity or or, or the output. Yeah, oh, I think for for some people maybe not, but for me, um, it, it's even at the point where with uh, um, you know I write a weekly column for for the newspaper. Um, I spend days worrying about not having any idea what I'm going to have to do. And, uh, you know, even on the last day when I have to file, I'm, I'm walking around in a, in a state of some tension, just going, okay, this is it. Finally, I've cracked. <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> um, some readers would agree with that even after I've, I've produced it, I've still got nothing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, it is the pressure of that final um, deadline coming up that... Uh, that spurs something, but I'm not sure if it's always um, successful. It, but that it, that is the mechanism um, uh, that, that operates um, on me. If you had to walk away from either fiction or fact journalism, nonfiction uh, tomorrow, um, and only and only devote your attention to one field, um, and you would be just as rich and famous in either case. Um, which which path would you take? Yeah, or poor and famous. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I'd, I'd obviously say um, 
writing novels is the, is the main thing for me and it, it always has been the main thing but it, but it's not a highly remunerative um uh pursuit and uh you know I've, I've got a family and my kids are you know fortunately coming to the the end of their dependent uh period of life but uh for the last 18 years i've had had you know two kids um depending on on both of me and um and my wife to to support us all so you know if, if you're asking about that fantasy, yes, um, I would only write novels. But then I think going back to your earlier question, I, I wouldn't function so well without without the pressure. Just given given an, an uh, you know infinite uh, horizon yeah. of time to write a novel, I'd probably end up doing nothing because there'd be no, there'd be no pressure, none of that urgency that um, that I seem to need. What are you working on next? Um, I'm actually really trying for just a few weeks to, to not think about that. And do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's quite hard and, and that's a time when I'm really hard to live with. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a couple of, of ideas that um, I'm not sure this is ideas for novels um and i'm not sure whether they'll be you know whether they'll have the juice in them or not until until i really give it a crack and that that's happened to me quite a lot as well i've gone with something for 10 or twenty thousand words and then just given it up so uh i don't know um i, I just really would like to be able to relax or even <laughs> even even one day um, yeah, but, uh, preferably a few weeks. Well, Bluebird is a superb novel, and I think you've you've earned a rest. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Malcolm. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. I want to ask uh, one more question. Uh, your imagined world of Ocean City, which is um, a, a kind of thinly veiled, uh, corporatized Sydney. Mm. Um, uh, where, where do you where do you see the the fate of of that that city in the, uh, particularly in its its beachside communities in the next say ten years? Um, wow, well, that's a that, that's um, it's a question you know I've thought about a lot, and yet I don't think I've ever really thought about it to the point where I've had to had to answer it. Mm. Um, and, and then you throw in you throw in the, the changed world that we're that we're living in and how does that affect that location um obviously from the from a book you know i'm portraying pressure portraying an increasing sense of people being hemmed in um and and that's you know that's the great myth of the beach that it is um a place that offers the idea and even the reality of, of freedom and um, the infinite when actually the beach in every way in a city like that is, is a very competitive, um, claustrophobic, hemmed-in environment. Um, and, and, you know, then we have these weather events where, you know, the ocean's coming in and eating these beaches up 
uh, our local beaches at the moment are really exposed. There are all these rocks there that you've never seen before. And um, uh, certainly uh, up at Warmbarall and um, Narrabeen, they, you know, they had houses crumbling into the, into the sea in those weather events a few weeks ago. So um, I, I guess I would just see more, more of the same pressures increasing and also spreading out of the city up the coast and that dynamic of um, you know the world closing in on you from the outside is probably being felt more and more by people in regional um, uh, coastal towns and even small coastal towns little little one-shop retreats where people are going to move more and more because they can that, you know, they can work remotely, they want to be out of the cities, uh, they want to live somewhere a bit cheaper. Um, there's going to be more of that pressure sort of diffusing throughout, both on the, the west and east coast of Australia, um, out of the cities into the country. So that's probably, you know, if I'm, if I'm bold enough to make any forecasts, it's that, it's that ocean city, that, the place of that book, can, can equally apply to Batemans Bay or mm. Browley down south or um, Crescent Head uh, or, you know, even the, even the smaller places that are currently undiscovered. Um, so not, not just your, your big regional centres, but, uh, yeah, ev everywhere on the coast, it, it feels like the pressure, the pressure of people upon that environment is just going to get... Uh, greater and greater as the environment comes under deeper threat <laughs> yeah you, you know it's people it's people getting themselves from both directions uh whether yeah. through building um or through uh you know the macro effects of what they've done on the the, the ocean and the climate um both of these forces are coming together on that little strip of land yes um malcolm thank you very much for your time today and uh for you um, your fantastic new novel. It's, uh, it's, it's really something to go out and read. Thanks, Ben. Thanks a lot. Bluebird is published by Alan and Unwin, and you can buy it and all Malcolm's novels uh, and nonfiction from booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget... You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.